The aestheticization of politics is a process that has been decades, if not maybe a century, in the making. But with the election of Trump in 2016, the 24 news hour cyclization of politics no longer simply affects the passive lumpen participant in the system, and now begins to affect those that liberal democracy claims represents them, the politicians. This process, of course, happens in the most absurd fashion, one which further heightens politics as a game of entertainment. A vicious cycle which, like the wrappings upon an ancient Egyptian pharaoh, definitively embalm the rotting corpse of modern politics. They cannot simply let this modern system die, and allow a new one to rise from its ashes, but instead work to preserve its corpse and expect that no one notices. This preservation is one which is, of course, purely aesthetic. The postmodern political world is then quite like the mummy of modern politics. Its organs appear intact, its corpse simply a sleeping human being, but any meaningful signs of functioning life have ceased. The embalming of Lenin's corpse represents the act of aesthetic political preservation in a 20th century modern political system. The increasingly entrenched political bureaucracy, seeing their post-hoc connections to the theorist which gave their political project its ontological purpose slipping, attempt to preserve the ideals of the revolution. On the other hand, the development of the aesthetic form within 21st century politics is not based upon the physical preservation of a corpse for metaphorical significance, but takes on a significance which is literal. The 20th century form of aesthetic politics is Brezhnev pointing to Lenin's displayed, preserved corpse and saying, we are just like him. The 21st century form is instead a charismatic news anchor pointing to his corpse and saying, he is still in command. This process can be seen in a politician like Joe Biden. With a Democratic Party apparatus, with its pseudo-affiliated media attachments, managed to convince, at minimum, millions of people that he is a competent and functioning politician. As the best way of describing politics in the contemporary age is through movies, we can imagine that this is a weekend at Bernie situation. Fundamentally, the 20th century aesthetic could be meaningfully pierced by reality. This is why state censors were required in the Soviet system to meaningfully uphold the Khrushchevite lie that actually existing socialism had any connection to Lenin and, even more absurdly, Marx. In the postmodern world, the aesthetic is no longer, in its traditional sense, a lie of sorts. This new reality, or hyper-reality as Baudrillard puts it, is purely aesthetic and has no capacity to pierce into reality. The aesthetic becomes politics, a sign which only refers to itself, a simulation that exists which is in reference to nothing. The censor is not required to prevent the layman's political piercing of the aesthetic into reality, and all that any fascist government could dream is available in a quote-unquote liberal society with a quote-unquote free press and democratic institutions. Gaspar Milkos Thomas writes of the similarities between modern Hungary with its democratically elected government, free press, and bustling tourist industry from the West, building fences against refugees at its borders. He says, quote, The same thing happened in 1944. Some 600 Jews had just been taken to Auschwitz, and in the newspaper of the day, you could read about the new premiere of cabaret operettas, musical comedies in the cinemas, and the football championship that was on. Everyone was enjoying themselves, while the death marches were going through town, People pick up their newspapers, open the sports pages, and no one gave a toss. It's the same thing now. Nobody cares. Well, of course, when the Coletti station were occupied, it was unpleasant, because people couldn't travel. But now everything is back to normal. The trains are running to Vienna. 
Mr. Orban has won. There is a reason why Trump's post-election speech, after he had lost, of course, spent so much time talking about unfair media polls and the general media bias than any actual allegations of voter fraud, or why he claimed that the election had to be called the night of because that's how it's done on the news every four years. It's the same reason that after Fox News had called Arizona for Biden on election night, Trump was so insistent on calling Rupert Murdoch to get it changed. This is because Trump thinks that the TV box is what makes something real. It's not a representation of reality, but what solidifies its existence. This makes sense considering that Trump is a man who watches approximately 9 hours of news television a day, a watching pattern that can only be described as connecting an individual to an entirely different reality than the one which plays out in the physical, material world. This is not a process which is of course exclusive to Trump, but is fairly clearly endemic to greater American and, at minimum, Western society. We can see this in general voting patterns, where affiliation between Democrat and Republican functions far more as a cultural signifier which is not rooted in any policy positions or material interests. This is perfectly displayed in Florida, where Trump won by three points while, during the same election, a minimum wage increase up to $15 an hour was also approved by a majority of voters. Trump, of course, does not support a minimum wage increase to $15 an hour at the federal level, while Biden at least ostensibly does. The general Fox exit polls indicated something similar, with 72% of voters favoring government-run health care, 67% favoring increased spending on renewable energy, 77% thinking racism is a problem in society, 72% of which also specifically think it's an issue in policing, and many other positions that show that the majority of the electorate is more left than both political parties. What results from this, or arguably what this is caused by, is politics being the realm of cultural signifiers, one which is purely aesthetic, where voters submit their ballots like a sports fan roots for their favorite team. Fast-paced and generally inaccurate news coverage turns the individual's political world into an entertaining spectacle where it seems as if, for the most part, material interests are becoming a vestigial element of American electoral voting patterns. As you may have guessed, the two seminal concepts and thinkers incorporated into the SEP to describe the 2020 election are French social theorist Jean Baudrillard's conception of the simulacra and Gaspar Milkos Thomas's idea of post-fascism. The main thesis here, or the main worry, is probably a better way of putting it, is that reality is shrinking away from the individual and material physical politics is leaving alongside it. What's replaced is a political and cultural life that is purely aesthetic with no reference to any material political reality. This analysis by Baudrillard connects with that of the concept of post-fascism, where the political goals of a fascist can be met in the postmodern world within a liberal democracy that, has, that ostensibly has universal rights, freedom of speech, and a parliamentary system. I emphasize that this thesis is a worry insofar as the beginning of this ep has been me speaking in hyperbole. It requires the individual to pay attention to particular elements of politics and culture within their life and set aside other ones. The real political world is certainly shrinking, but it is not doing so quietly. What I mean by that is that material politics in the world are still, for many people, certainly real. Baudrillard writes of war, for instance, that it is the most real thing that still exists, even if CNN has reduced it to a spectacle for many viewers. 
What we can learn from this analysis primarily is to attach any radical politic onto this fading real as it exists for the most marginalized, those displaced by drought, war, famine, poverty, climate catastrophe, etc., and help build a political program suited to and alongside their interests. For if we wish to have a material political program, its base must be centered on those whose visceral experiences of exploitation and politically engineered poverty force them to live in the real world and not the one depicted on the news. American politics will continue to accelerate into the hyper-real representation of nothing, as the competition between the Democratic and Republican parties remains a purely aesthetic competition between two factions of the ruling class. As this sports match continues, the massive upsurge in migrants from the global south fleeing a newly present climate catastrophe are blocked at arbitrary borders, which they did not consent to being born on the other side of, and put in concentration camps. While this reality fades away in the global north, it remains viscerally real for those who are forced through artificial scarcity to live in poverty and on the streets. The debate between the Republican and Democratic parties can necessarily not concern questioning and attacking the structural root of these problems. And as competition between them melts into a gaseous nothingness with as much substance as a sports ball match, we must attach our politics to those, both within and without our borders, whose political world is still necessarily real. There is a certain sense in which you don't really need to read Baudrillard, as confessed by the man himself in his book Forget Baudrillard. Because much of his predictions about politics and culture are becoming reality, or should I say becoming hyper-reality, and his conclusions are fairly depressing enough that you're better off taking the time you would have spent reading him and spent it watching a movie. The Matrix, for instance, attempts to work off Baudrillard's theories, and explicitly quotes him and uses his seminal work Simulacra and Simulation as a prop, but ends up with a much more optimistic account of reality, where at least the simulation, the matrix, can be pierced by the existence of the real world, however bleak that real world is. For Baudrillard, late techno-capitalism, acceleration of capitalist productive drives towards the commodification of all elements of culture and society combined with the technological developments which are possible as a result of this acceleration has essentially shut the door on reality, and the individual's understanding of the world, the hyperreal, is a pure product of the images they see on TV, the sounds from the radio, and in a contemporary context, the memes posted on Twitter. Which of course is why Twitter is not a place that meaningful material organizing can be done, it at best leads individuals off of Twitter to real, physical sites of organizing, and at worst convinces the individual that posting is political praxis, and their political world is filtered through the notification box on a website designed and ran by a Nazi sympathizer. A simulacra, which is the model that Baudrillard believes contemporary culture is built upon, is unlike the simulation which works to copy and represent perfectly an original. The simulacra exists purely in reference to itself. It does not represent anything, but creates its own reality. This reality is realer than real in a sense, hyper-reality, as it is constructed in movies, on the news, in video games, on the internet, becomes more real than our own intimate phenomenological experiences. We can only relate our phenomenological experiences to the things we see on these mediums. Hyperreality is perfectly described in the movie A Clockwork Orange, with the quote, It's funny how the colors of the world 
only seem really real when you video them on the screen. This is in reference to how blood in real life doesn't look like it does in the movies. Real blood is less exciting and interesting, less real than our typical conception of it in the movies. This is precisely how the American political electoral system is meant to function. The promises and goals, and even objective statements about reality, made by political parties is not real in the earnest sense of the word. It isn't meant to be. For it to reference reality, it would have to reconcile and appeal to people's material interests. This is why we can imagine the Democratic Party establishment was so vividly disgusted with Bernie's political platform, as it was contingent on, at some level at least, appealing to the real material situation of potential voters. While it is highly unlikely you could meaningfully undo this process of turning politics into hyperreality through a democratic socialist bourgeois electoral party platform, we can imagine that at some level it upsets the process of taking the individual's material interests out of what they imagine politics to be. But three are adds to Marx's traditional conception of three different values existing, adding a fourth one, sign value. This is essentially the value of something as it relates to cultural clout and prestige. Consumption for Baudrillard in the postmodern, or ultra-modern as he puts it, world is primarily driven by the signified social value of an object. One buys the supreme brick, a literal brick that had the supreme logo on it, because others say that the supreme brand is valuable. This is how we can come up with the idea that someone is famous for being famous. The value of their brand as we should put it, is purely based upon its sign value. It adds nothing of meaning to the other three conceptions of economic value. One is famous because people perceive them as being famous. An analysis of Trump and his ilk I've made before is that he's the first Zoomer president, in the same sense that Bill Clinton was the first black president and Obama was the first gay president, insofar as Trump is the first president that truly appreciates clout and ratings. I also generally refer to Trump's brand of authoritarianism as influencer fascism. What this really comes from is that Trump is the first president who is explicitly driven by sign value and the concept of people as an abstract group liking him. This postmodern aesthetic facade masquerading as modern politics is, in many cases, driven by the 24-hour news cycle. As previously mentioned, this is the only reasonable explanation for people imagining that the election is called the night of, and not months later when the electoral college convenes. While in reality, news stations call elections when it is seemingly mathematically impossible for the result of the election, which they have no legal or institutional place within, to not be one of the two main candidates. What this does not consider is that news stations are some of the most concentrated and impactful productions of hyperreal politics. In this world, the electoral college process which convenes in December does not matter. What matters is the newsman on the news box. Both parties understand this. Trump understands it in a fairly obvious and direct way. While there is a reason that Biden planned a speech the Friday after the election, before any news station had called the election for him, stalled the beginning of the speech for multiple hours while pressuring major news outlets to finally call the election, and after they didn't call it for him that night, to stretch the news cycle another day for more ratings, he simply made a speech saying that it was looking good for their campaign. It was only until the next day, after most major news outlets called it, that Biden made his official victory speech. This may not directly prove 
that those in the Democratic Party are as brain-poisoned by television as Trump is, but what it at minimum proves is that many in the Democratic Party at least understand that the hyper-real is present among much of the American population, who would be far less receptive to Biden declaring victory even after a point where it was mathematically impossible for him to lose the election because the newsman on the news box didn't say he was president yet. In his latter and more wacky and absurd work, Baudrillard covered the first Iraq war for a French news outlet. Like a good student of the hyperreal, he, of course, did not go to Iraq or Kuwait, but stayed in his apartments and watched the coverage on CNN. The book he published, titled The Gulf War Did Not Take Place, goes over how CNN took the most real thing in existence, which is war, and made it hyperreal. But Triar understands the first Gulf War as a media stunt of sort for the West, with a predetermined result and a pre-drawn narrative that was depicted on CNN regardless of the explicit real content of the war. To quote from this book, Since this war was won in advance, we will never know what it would have been like had it existed. We will never have known what an Iraqi taking part with the chance of fighting would have been like. We will never know what an America taking part with the chance of being beaten would have been like. We have seen what an ultra-modern process of electrocution is like, a process of paralysis or lobotomy of the experimental enemy away from the field of battle with no possibility of reaction. But this is not war. Any more than 10,000 tons of bombs per day is sufficient to make it war. Any more than the direct transmission by CNN of real-time information is sufficient to authenticate a war. One is reminded of Capricorn 1, in which the flight of a man rocket to Mars, which only took place in a desert studio, was relayed live to all the television stations in the world. Baudrillard attempts to totalize his analysis by analyzing the Iraqis in Saddam, but I think the main point that's important is the American side of this. I would also reply that for the Iraqis being bombed and slaughtered by the American army, the war was real. Even if for many American troops, because of technological developments, there still is this sort of pseudo-experience of war, the same thing that a drone operator experiences. This process of war is, especially for those that viscerally experience it, and are not impacted by news stations like CNN, viscerally real. Nevertheless, with the American side of this, CNN represents the war through repeating the few pieces of footage they had of Iraqi Scud missiles actively doing damage. Very few of them actually penetrated the Patriot missile defense system and did any damage. The image generated here is a war between the aggressive Iraqi onslaught of Scud missiles against the American Patriot missile system. Even the names generated sound like they're from G.I. Joe movies. And the narrative, which is driven here, has extremely little actual reference to the reality of the war. The actual content of the war did not matter for this, and regardless of the real results the capacity of the war had for promotion, in relation to its economic sign value, was endless. Both three are rights of promotion that, quote, Promotion is the most thick-skinned parasite in our culture. It would undoubtedly survive a nuclear conflict. It is our last judgment, but it is also like a biological function. It devours our substance but it also allows us to metabolize what we absorb, like a parasitic plant or intestinal flora. It allows us to turn the world and the violence of the world into a consumable substance. The promotional capacity of an important historical event 
if history within Baudrillard's world is even a legible concept, sucks the life out of any meaningful understanding. Like a spider injecting its victims inside with venom, it turns the victim's heterogeneous system of organs into a homogeneous goo readily available for consumption. This is what the 24-hour news cycle did to the 2020 election. Regardless of the real results of the election, as the Electoral College decides in December, the promotional advantages from both sides of the aisle are clear. The Republicans get their win, based upon the election night results that did not count the heavily Democratic-favored mail-in ballots that would be counted later, and the Democrats in turn their win as well based upon being sabotaged by the progressive wing of the party, by Black Lives Matter activists, and even, I would have imagined if they lost, Russia. It does not matter that the Trump campaign has no real legal or juridical basis to argue in courts that any of the election process is illegitimate, nor does it matter that every progressive Democrat in the House and Senate held on to their seats, while the meaningful losses within the Democratic Party mainly came from the center. What matters is that these real elements of the world are smoothed over by the hyper-real construction of politics as a spectator sport that has no real reference to an individual's material life. Wanting a society where homeless people don't die on the streets is not a political belief. Wanting a minimum wage that anyone can live on is not a political belief. Wanting a healthcare system where you can go to the emergency room with an injury and leave without a bill is not a political belief. This is because the political world, for many, is not the world of the real, but the hyper-real. This is where the free part of this episode ends. Um, so join me on my Patreon, patreon.com slash liveposting. For just $2 a month, you can get the rest of this where I connected more explicitly to post-fascism as a concept and what that means for politics.